0: netcasts you love
1: from people you trust
0: this is twit bandwidth for security now is provided by aol radio at aol.com slash podcasting this is security now with steve gibson episode 190 for april 2nd 2009 your questions, Steve's answers, number 63. Security Now is brought to you by squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. For a free trial and 10% off your new account, go to squarespace.com/securitynow. And by audible.com for your free audiobook and a whole lot more, visit audiblepodcasts.com/securitynow. And by GoToMeeting. Stop wasting time and money on meeting in person. Hold your meetings online. You could do more and travel less. For a free trial, visit GoToMeeting.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now on the most important security day of the year. April Fools! Hey, and isn't it perfect that I sound like crap today? Uh, I am Leo Laporte, that guy, way distant, far away. Hello, Leo. It's Steve Gibson. Earth to Leo.
1: Earth to Leo. Come here, Leo. <laughs>
0: Over. Steve's on the phone today. He's using his PDP-8 for Skype, and that's what they sound like.
1: Yeah, I thought I'd have more time to work out the code, but we seem to have a problem here.
0: So <laughs> what happens when you use a 12-bit computer to do an 8-bit eight, an job. So, uh, so we are, but it's a big day. We're recording on April 1st. Uh, of course, this will air on uh, April 2nd, but, uh. We've got to talk about Conficker. We've got to talk about that that ghost net, the giant uh, spy network uh, created by some foreign government. Um, there's lots to talk about. Plus, we've got 12 great questions and answers. That's yep, but another feedback.
1: bad problem has been found in Windows, kernel.
0: Good Lord.
1: Yeah, it just never ends. <laughs> when, when
0: will it all end? I want to welcome a new sponsor, one you don't know about, Steve. They've actually been uh, with us for a couple of weeks now. I'm moving my blog over to them. It's a it's I don't want to say a blogging platform. It's a, a web hosting platform called Squarespace. And they, they use um I, they're they're using some really cool technology. I wish I understood it better to virtualize. Uh, they're using Java. It's really an interesting program. But the upshot of it is for people who use it, is you get this amazing interface for designing your blog. They have great templates to start with, but things like drag and drop column widths, widths and stuff just make it so easy to, to customize lots of widgets. It's it's hosting as well, so you get very high quality hosting. You never have to worry about bandwidth again because whether you get dug or slash dotted or twitted, uh, they, they have amazing uh, virtual technology that allows them to put more bandwidth online in seconds. Squarespace, S-Q-U-A-R-E-S-P-A-C-E dot com. Uh, you know, the, the guy, uh, Anthony, who, uh, who, who designed this is a brilliant programmer. And uh, it's kind of an interesting uh, story. You know, he, as usual, as is often the case, he decided to, to design something for his own needs and uh, ended up making something that was so wonderfully useful that uh, it's it's become an incredible product. People are just starting now to find out about it. We're really early on the Squarespace bandwagon, so I really want to uh, encourage you to check it out. Uh, Kevin Rose is now using it for his blog. Sarah Lane uses it for her blog. I was talking to Amber, and uh, she said, you know, it's funny, Chris Dick, uh, I want to call him her husband, the father of her child, they might as well be married. Uh, Chris Dick uses it for his blog. He's been using it for a long time. Loves it. I mean, this guy's an artist, a photographer, a videographer and he uses Squarespace as a gallery. It is truly amazing. Now, here's what I want you to do: go to squarespace.com/security now. You could sign up right now to create your Squarespace blog. Try it free for two weeks, and if you decide you want to stick around, use security now as a coupon code. You'll get 10 percent off. I think you're going to want to take a look at this if you're if you're deciding now about your web presence. And again, I don't want to say blog. They've got forums. They've got uh, photo albums. They've got blogging. This is incredible. We're moving the uh, twit corporate blog over there. I'm moving Leoville over there. It's it's what I've been looking for for a long time, and I think you might want to take a, take a look too. Squarespace.com slash security now. Give them a try. And let me know what you think. Uh, the more, I talk to people all the time. are going, wow, this is incredible. So, Steve, uh, I don't know where to begin here. <laughs> this is the day that Conficker was supposed to phone home.
1: Well, actually, yeah. What happens is on April 1st, the, the security analysis in the industry, have, looking at the Configure code, also known as Downadup, uh, and this is actually there, so far we've had three variations of, of Configure, so-called dot .a, dot .b, and dot .c. The dot .c most recent variation has been, th- there's been this cat and mouse game with the Configure control masters or bot masters, um, and the security industry the, the the key for keeping a worm or botnet then configure is both essentially alive is allowing it somehow to update itself and to avoid the authorities so one of the reasons that this particular worm is doing so well, if you want to put it that way yeah. is that that It's able to phone home to get updates to itself. And normally what happens is, for example, a couple websites will be determined to be like control points, and those will be shut down, thus cutting the worm off from any updates or in some cases from control. Well, the earlier versions of Conficker were doing something new, and that is they were using a pseudo-random algorithm to choose... Domain names, which would extend all the way into the future, and so the idea would be that instead of it being ha- having a few domain names hardwired into the code that that people could reverse engineer and claim in, in order, uh, essentially register preemptively, this thing just keeps generating them. That's so, it, so it's a,
0: smart, so clever.
1: Oh, it is. Unfortunately, yeah. I, you know, I wish these guys would get a, a real job. In which case, you know. <laughs> Hey, I bet this job pays pretty well. <laughs> I mean, we don't know. Do we know what they're up to? Really? Um, well, we know that. I you mean, know, it. It's a botnet. It's it spams. It attacks. It you know it. It also infects. It. Um, so so what's happened is on April first, instead of generating and checking two hundred and fifty a, a random set of two hundred and fifty. Constantly moving target domains on April first today uh, or yesterday, if you're listening to this on our on our release date for the podcast of Thursday, um, that number jumps to fifty thousand. Now that means that that the worm will be randomly checking one of fifty or many of fifty thousand different sites per day, which makes it, I mean, really difficult for for the security guys to preemptively block, to, to register and block those sites. All they have to miss is one. That is, if, if the bad guys choose one out of the known 50,000 that the worm will, will try to contact, then they're there, and, and some of the worms will get there. The uh, Configure also has a peer-to-peer technology that means that they don't all have to reach the mothership they're all, they've also formed a, an interlocking network among themselves. So if only one gets updated, it's able to update its peers. I mean, it's, it's beautifully designed to survive. And so far, it's, it, it has done that.
0: It's pretty amazing. Now, did this, um, you know, today was the day it was supposed to go get variant D. And the last I saw, it hasn't.
1: Um, I have not been looking at it today. I've been producing this podcast. I've been been
0: watching. In fact, I started watching because, you know, it's so funny because it's very hard to sort through this because even the tech press seems to be completely incompetent when it comes to analyzing and understanding (laughs) this stuff. So you're getting all these variants. One one magazine said it's going to be at midnight, a rolling midnight across the world, which doesn't actually, I don't, maybe that's what it's doing. Another one said midnight GMT. So I started looking uh, around uh, 10 p.m., which is about three hours in, and the servers had gone live, the were had picked the 500 servers they were going to use, but no data had been handed off yet. And so I suspect that uh, what's happening is there, it doesn't have to be now. No, It could be no. any time, right?
1: Right. Uh, you're right. Essentially, the, the, the code that's already in place, which is the C variant, that code that 's in place changes its behavior on April Fool's Day of two thousand and nine to dramatically expand its basically its potential target domains Now there's still a lot more B variant than there is C there weren 't that many updates to c it 's still significant, but but there, there's still a lot of B the B variant doesn 't do this it's only the c variant of Configure which changes its behavior on april fools day so and it's funny too because i mean the popular press has has been you know anytime something malicious has a trigger date that sort of catalyzes the press it's like oh you know we can talk about this on march 31st and and you know i've i've had people my regular normal friends sending me email this morning oh should i turn my computer off or do i have to worry about anything because of this April Fool's Day thing. It's like, no. I mean, this doesn't directly affect people. This changes the behavior of something, which now moving forward, it can be much more difficult potentially to block this. But nothing happens, as far as we know, specifically today. It's just that the behavior changes today.
0: Well, I guess we'll just keep up to date on what's going on and uh, fill you in. Um, Once again, though, I'm just impressed... (laughs) By the technical skills these guys are showing. It's well,
1: a- it's you know it's a cat and mouse game, and so smart people against smart people. Right. I mean, these are smart people, and so as as the security industry has come up with and gotten better at blocking the communications, the the, the, the command and control channel of previous botnets, the botnet authors have scratched their heads, and right. they said, okay, how do we get around? this problem and then that one gets fixed. okay how do we get around that problem and so
0: that's why this payload thing is smart because as new problems arise you can update your virus
1: yeah yeah (laughs) not to give them any props whatsoever (laughs) in other in other happy news yes uh we do have a new bad kernel integer overflow that's been found in only xp so Vista people don't need worry, nor Windows 7. This is, but it's across all of XP, uh, it, it's in the GDI plus DLL, yeah, and it's the enhanced metafile, the EMF. It's, it, in fact, the formal name is Microsoft GDI plus EMF GP font dot set data integer overflow. Oh boy. What it all means is is that if a maliciously crafted image can somehow be shown on your computer that's a takeover event so put it on a web page you visit the web page your machine is compromised uh, send somebody an email if they've got if they're using for example Outlook with the you know I mean or with, I was gonna say with the preview pane but even if you didn't if you if you view the email the act of viewing it displays the image your machine is compromised um, or even embedding um, the, the malicious image in an office document, and you you know you you open the office document, bang! And, and even in a, in a PDF. I mean, anything that displays that, that that uses the Windows renderer to parse this enhanced Metafile image um, can ex- ex- can cause this this integer overflow to occur. Uh, I, I looked at the website for the guys that have completely dissected it, and Although there isn't, it's not currently known that this is in the wild. Microsoft knows about it, but there's no patch for it. So now we wait. Uh-huh. So now it's a, now it's, it's a, um, a question of who's going to get there first. And here we are at the beginning of April. So the question will be, will Microsoft be able to get something out the door by, by Patch Tuesday, which is the second Tuesday of the month? And what is this? That will be, well, they have two weeks because it, it didn't happen this week Right. because this is Wednesday right. on the 1st. So they got two weeks. My guess is this is bad enough that we will see a patch for this in two weeks. So there's a two-week window, given that they make it in two weeks, during which time something bad could come out.
0: Remember Microsoft saying with the last WMF exploit, uh, actually, remember, actually it was WESA who thought it might be an intentional... Uh, of- plant in the wmf
1: code. well that we was really dump this code very controversial position that i took right. um a little over a year ago that it was that it, and remember that mark rasinovich looked at the code and he said uh, this does look like it was in there from a long time ago it was it was clever you could imagine that they a an a, like back before in the days when security was a concern, some guy said, "Hey, you know, we have an interpreter for metaphiles. That's what this whole metaphile thing is. It, it, it's basically it's a little interpreted language where it's like, move here, draw a line here, put cursor here, draw a circle of this radius. It, it, it's an interpreted language. That's what a Windows metaphile is. And you can imagine, the developers saying, you know, what if we wanted sort of like an escape hatch where we could actually run native code in from in the image file, not just interpreted code. And way before the internet, I mean, the Windows metafiles were there in Windows 1.0. It was a it's a co- original core component. And so security, no one had a concept of a malicious image back then, or the idea of communicating it. So it was like That's sort of a harmless extra feature that may never be used. Well, you know, looking closely at the Metafile interpreter, the hackers said, hey, we know how to use that. So anyway, that's the history of that. I do think it was intentional. I don't think it was an intentional backdoor. I think it was an intentional feature that, that Microsoft forgot to remove that was never used or required. They just forgot to remove it. Over the passage of time, sort of like they forgot to remove raw sockets when they went to XP. <laughs> Whoops! Yeah, there's another little problem. Now this one, it,
0: I mean, this is a bu- an integer buffer overflow. Yes, th- this is this, this is is not bad. a feature. This, this is, is bad something,
1: programming. Right. It's and I mean, true. It's the programmer's fault. I will, in defense of programmers everywhere, just say that whoa, this is it's just so hard to find every possible way that a program can be abused. It's just, it's just hard. You know, programmers look at it in terms of getting it going, not in terms of, ooh, how could what's going somehow be made to do the wrong thing? So it, it's just difficult. Yeah. Wow. Um, okay. Also, since we've last spoken, Firefox bumped itself up to 3.0.8. And the Firefox updates seem to be coming a little more often than they used to. Um, this fixes two security vulnerabilities um, that involve, uh, w- w- one of them at least, a malicious XML file. You'd, you would have to view a mal- malicious XML file. So it's not something that's super critical, but Firefox is good about updating itself. So I would imagine our listeners have are, have seen their Firefox was update uh, automatically. I know that I did a few days ago. So, so that's being dealt with.
0: That, by the way, one of the exploits they say they uh, f- fixed on the uh, Apple version, the Mac version of Firefox, is that... That zero that uh, uh, instant exploit that the to own w- uh, was used at pwn to own right. I didn't realize it was not just a Safari exploit, but it was a problem in Firefox too. Right. So they fixed that. Yeah.
1: And I don't think we've talked ever about a Cisco router update, um, but there is one. I want to mention it because I know that we've got listeners in IT and who are like you know involved with networking, and I want to make sure they knew that Cisco had had released the first in a long while update. Uh, there's, it's, it can, there's eight updates that address 11 security uh, flaws in the iOS, uh, Cisco's router firmware. So anybody who's, who's maintaining and keeping Cisco routers up will want to make sure that they're, they're aware of that. Hmm. And then finally, in, on the security front, uh, news came out this week about an interesting network, uh, basically a, a spy surveillance network which has been named GhostNet by its discoverers. Um, it is the topic of next week's Security Now podcast. Um, a old buddy of mine, John Markoff, who used to be uh, at InfoWorld, he's now writing for the New York Times. Um, and, and he wrote an article. I'll, I'll read a little bit at the beginning of it because it gives our listeners a quick snapshot of this. Uh, the title was Vast Spy System Loots Computers in 103 Countries. Mm. Um, A vast electronic spying operation has infiltrated computers and has stolen documents from hundreds of government and private offices around the world, including those of the Dalai Lama, Canadian researchers have concluded. In a report to be issued this weekend, the researchers said that the system was being controlled from computers based almost exclusively in China, but that they could not say conclusively that the Chinese government was involved. The researchers who are based at the Monk Center for International Studies at the University of Toronto had been asked by the office of the Dalai Lama, the exiled Tibetan leader whom China regularly denounces, to examine its computers, that is the Dalai Lama's computers, for signs of malicious software or malware. Their sleuthing opened a window into a broader operation that, in less than two years, has infiltrated at least 12 195 computers in 103 countries, including many belonging to embassies, foreign ministries, and other government offices, as well as the Dalai Lama's Tibetan exile centers in India, Brussels, London, and New York. The researchers who have a record of detecting computer espionage said they believed that in addition to the spying on the Dalai Lama, the system, which they called GhostNet, was focused on the governments of Southern Asian and Southeast Asian countries. Intelligence analysts say many governments, including those of China, Russia, and the United States, and other parties, use sophisticated computer programs to covertly gather information.
0: An interesting point. We kind of knew that these kinds of things were going on, didn't we?
1: We did, but what's really cool, and the reason I want to give this next week's episode, is that their report is beautifully written conservative no no hyperbole it's very nicely written it's extremely comprehensive and so i'm going to i'm going to absorb it all and distill it for our listeners and and really sort of i think we'll have a great episode next week talking about an instance of this i mean sure we all sort of presume it's going
0: on and we're probably doing this i would hope we're fact, i'd be disappointed if we're not doing the same thing
1: it is still strikes me as sci-fi, this notion yeah. of cyber warfare. Yeah. But I guess we need to take it seriously.
0: Well, it'd be imprudent. Yes. <laughs> uh, and, and I have to figure that for at least five years, the NSA and others have been working on this kind of thing.
1: Yeah. Oh, uh, one hopes and, one and hopes. presumes.
0: Yeah. Our, I would, and what I would hope our hackers would be everybody as good as theirs. <laughs> right.
1: Exactly. <laughs> um, okay. So that's next week. Uh, Errata. Um, or sort of a errata, um, every so often, as our listeners know, I stumble upon something that I think is neat. Um, I ran across an interesting add-on for Firefox that I wanted to share, which may suit some people and may not others. Um, the way I run Firefox as my browser is, as I'm researching things or running around during the day, I'm, I'll, I'll use control-click to open another tab. And I use it sort of as a placeholder, like I'm going to get to that, but I, I don't want this to dis- distract me right now. Consequently, I end up with a huge number of tabs open. I mean, so much so that Firefox won't sh- gives up trying to show them all, and I get little scroll arrows on the left and right so that I can you know move through them, which is sort of a problem because I'd like to have a better view. I just by I stumbled on something. I think it might have been it was suggested to me by Firefox. Maybe it was a new a new version or update or something. Anyway, it's called Tree Style Tab. And so, if you put into your Find Add-ons dialog in Firefox, Tree Style Tab, um, it'll take you right to this. What this does is, uh, it there's many different ways it can display. What I've done is I've opened up a I'd like a tab list on the left hand side of Firefox so that i I've got the whole height of my screen uh-huh. now to show me my tabs and when you when you when you're on a on a page and you you shift click to open a to open another tab from a link it indents it in outline style so you can see the parentage and and trace back the relationship so anyway i'm I, i'm still, I, I've only had it for a day, so I still am, my instincts are to go up, up to the top where tabs used to be, and I'm, I'm not yet retrained, but already I can see so many more tabs, and the hierarchical representation is something that I really appreciate. So it's, it's funny because I told a friend of mine, and he said, oh no, I just, I only have, I don't like, you know, multiple tabs. I just have one thing at a time. It's like, okay, this is not for you. No. So no. I recognize <laughs> it may not be for many of our listeners, but... If there are people like me who end up with, like, with just tab insanity, this thing really looks like it's going to be a great solution for that.
0: We, uh, I think power users and, and, and techies use a lot of tabs. Kevin Rose, two weeks ago on Twit, was talking about that. And he, said, he just said, okay, how many tabs do each of you have open? <laughs> and it was an average, I think, of 17 or 18.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's and, oh, very common. One very cool thing about this. I mean, this thing's got features coming out of its ears. It's got more features than I've talked about. But, for example, you can protect tabs, which I really like. Because, for example, I'm still keeping a track on, of, of deck PDP things on eBay. So my very first tab for a long time has been a tab open to my eBay page. My second one is, a, uh, is something that I use for kind of keeping track of the stock market. It's a nice little stock market ticker viewer. Well, I've gotten used to them being there, but every so often I'll delete them by mistake. Well, it's not a big problem to reopen it, but this allows you to protect the tabs, essentially locking them in where they are and to their page. So then you just hit refresh every so often. So anyway, it's got a ton of features. If people, like, organize their lives through their browser based on tabs, I wanted to let people know about Tree Style Tab.
0: I'm installing it now. It's, it's cool. That sounds like something I'd use a lot.
1: Um, in going through the mailbag, I ran across a number of people who were were a little despondent at at being behind in security now episodes catching up hearing about the pdp8 kit that was made available several months ago yeah. and they're still available oh good so i wanted to i just wanted to let people know that, that not to be despondent all of the first round of them were made and sent i've got my three uh, and i'm not parting with any so don't bother asking <laughs> don't know begging um but there are still some available both the full kit for the, the, the board itself and for the front panel, and a, a bag of, of add-on parts for the front panel. So I just want to let, 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 let and any listeners know who are saying, gee, I'm really sorry, I missed being up to speed on that because I would have loved to do that. Uh, it's SpareTimeGizmos.com is the site, SpareTimeGizmos.com, where you can probably search for SBC, as in single board computer, SBC6120. That's the name of the chip, which is a single-chip PDP-8 this kid is based around.
0: Some people are reporting in our chat room. I think everybody went off to download that tree-style tabs. <laughs> and uh, some people are reporting the same experience I had, which is, uh, and I occasionally get this with Firefox, add-ons: a error saying uh, the uh, CRC is uh, inaccurate or something. Uh, and just my tip to them, uh, this has happened to me before with these beta. It usually is with beta Add-ins. Right-click and download it, and you'll get a .dot xpi file, which you can then open directly in Firefox, and you won't get that same error. Uh, I don't know why that happens, but uh, it's—I think it's either a bug in Firefox or it has to do with signing or something like that.
1: Huh? And maybe it's that th- the site's busy. Could it be that it just could be every- we killed the site because <laughs> it worked for me? Just—I mean, I just downloaded it directly into yeah, Firefox in a normal way. It
0: might be a Mac thing. I don't know. It's—it's. Hmm. It's, but anyway, I've installed it now and
1: I'm loving it. It's—it's oh, it's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a couple people asked, uh, in, with regard to the multifunction Yuba key, whether or how they could get the newer version. I sent email to Stina, which I received a reply to. Um, they're apparently they're going to be using one of the major uh, Swiss or Swedish, I wasn't sure which, automotive key manufacturers oh. to 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 make their next round of keys so they're probably ramping up production it's not going to be available until after the summer and they are going to be offering a discount to existing customers so uh, it won't there's no real way to upgrade your key or to trade the the single function for the dual function but at least people who have keys will be able to get them at a better price yeah great and then one bizarre thing that that just sort of crossed my radar uh, i was reading uh, in the sans uh, security list, uh, uh, their newsletter, somebody was talking about, he was actually a t- attending a security conference or event down in San Diego, and he received in his phone bill an excessive roaming charge from Verizon for his EVDO, which is what he uses to get on the internet. Of $199. Whoa. And it turns out, get a load of this. He talked to Verizon. They said they would remove it from the bill because he says, you know, I wasn't. He, but the, the point was, he was close to the Mexican border. And the Mexican cell towers uh. are not that busy and have high signal strength. And so his card was captured uh. by an out of country tower, which. Caused him, even though he wasn't out of country, to be hit with super high roaming charges, and apparently the problem is even worse near the U.S.-Canadian border. So I, I thought that was just like you know, the kind of thing you never expect or think about, but it's like whoops, gotcha.
0: Oh man! And, <laughs> and did he appeal it? And will they give him his money back? Yes,
1: they said they they did remove from his bill. Good. They said, but just this once. Yeah. So his advice was, if you know be careful about what what you know like what you're um, being captured by in terms of, of cell usage and it may not be safe to to um, use something that's got high roaming charges near a a border point where you're not sure whether because there's no real uh, there's no obvious demarcation. It's they, all automatic.
0: Yeah, it's sh- yeah, it should. There's, I guess they don't want to bug you, but they should warn you if they're going to. They do really that.
1: ought to. Yeah,
0: you can turn off data roaming in most phones, which is probably not a bad idea if you're going to be near the Mexican border.
1: And oh, so so that you would deny any an, a, yeah. any
0: non-local da- data roaming can be very expensive. Right. Uh, so you know, basically, what that says is. Only use Verizon for your 3G data, right? And that's probably the you know a, a good idea, prudent for most people anyway. Yeah.
1: Well, we're half an hour in, and I've got a SpinRite testimonial, but. So many people in our Q&A mentioned spinwright this week, that I'm going to skip the testimonial. We'll do it next <laughs> who week. Who needs a testimonial? My God, <laughs> the, everybody knows spinwright's the one. Well, this was really well written and really neat, but uh, we'll do it next <laughs> week.
0: All right. Yeah, we've got some great questions. Twelve questions coming up in just a second for people who... Yeah, these The questions are really our chance to talk back to Steve and get clarification. Uh, and Steve's so great at, at, at answering these questions and explaining what's going on, which is which is really great. So uh, that's coming up in just a second. I do want to mention, you may recuse yourself on SpinRight, but I ain't going to recuse myself on GoToMeeting. The folks at Citrix are great people. We're really happy to have them as a sponsor, and GoToMeeting is just such a great program. I, I take every opportunity I can to tell people about it. We use it now. Uh, Max, Ray Maxwell uses it for Maxwell's House. Um, I, we just had a, a presentation from Telos. They're going to give us a whole new audio system and they wanted to show us what, how it works and so forth. What they choose, go to meeting. I'm sure when it comes time to train us on it, go to meeting, go to meeting is great for sales. It's great for collaborating together. Uh, it's great for training. Uh, if you've not tried it, you can try it for free right now. Just go to gotomeeting.com slash security now and you get 30 days free. And this is going to be very much like what it will be when you become a go to meeting customer. You don't have to count your meetings. You don't have to watch the clock. It's unlimited online meeting for one low monthly rate. That's a great deal. The folks at Citrix, know remote access. So they do little things that make it a better solution. That traversal, for instance. So there's, you don't have to open ports or do port forwarding or heaven for fend a DMZ. It just works. Uh, they know about security. So it's 128 bit SSL encrypted every step of the way. So if you're doing something important, secret, private, you don't want your competitors to spy on you, don't worry. You're absolutely secure. There's never been an exploit with GoToMeeting. It is it is an amazing piece of software. They also make it work across platforms. So you can oh, you've always been able to have a meeting uh, from your Windows machine with any other machine as long as that machine can get on the net. Now it works on PCs and Macs, so you can hold a meeting with either platform and and your customers, your clients, your 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 meeting conferees can use either platform as well, no matter what you're using. I mean, it's these little things that make it a better solution. If you've tried other online meeting software, I urge you to give GoToMeeting a try. Go to gotomeeting.com slash security now for 30 days free. It'll take a couple of minutes to set up. You'll be done before we're done with this show, if you try it right now. Gotomeeting.com slash security now. We thank them so much for their support for the Security Now show. Our our sponsors are great. and boy, we, we We couldn't do the show without them, so... Thank you, Citrix.
1: Well, I think our sponsors are great because our listeners are great. The sponsors must be getting the bang for their buck and something in return for their sponsorship, and we thank our listeners for
0: that. You know what? Thank you, Steve, for reminding me. It really does come down to our listeners. always does. Um, We bring a smart, intelligent community together. I tell the advertisers, you know, you've got to give people trials. You've got got to assume they're intelligent. We're not tricking you into anything because these guys are too smart. But, boy, if you have a good product – they're loyal for life because they know, they know they're smart. I remember at Tech TV, they, uh, I said, why aren't we selling to these you know, people like this? Uh, why are we doing Saturn ads? And they said, well, because uh, most companies think that uh, s- smart people aren't bra- are brand insensitive. They Actually, the phrase they used is uh, brand is the refuge of the ignorant, implying that people like you and me don't pay attention to brand. Um, which which is somewhat true. I mean, we don't buy a, we don't buy Coke just because we saw a Coke ad. But boy, if you like something, you buy it, and you're darn well aware of the brand. Um, it's just anyway. Don't get me don't get me started. So we got questions. Let's get to them. Lots of them for Mr. Steve Gibbs. Starting with Michael, an expat. He's using something called Tor, the onion router, and he wants more. Hi, Steve and Leo. Thanks for the great show. I'm an expatriate living in Southeast Asia. And I like to use Tor to visit some areas of the web. I understand why. You know, you want some privacy. Um, As I have some interest in the U.S. uh, and European businesses that often restrict their services based on the IP address's incoming location. So I've configured my Tor.RC to only exit through certain U.S. or European nodes and not to have the exit node hop around. Oh, I didn't know you could do that. That's cute. Yeah, and that needs a nice little
1: tip in there, too.
0: So far, so good, as long as I'm only interested in anonymity, that is, in sites that don't need a login. The problem comes when I try to use Tor's features with sites or services that require a login. seems to me there's no way to know if I've picked a compromised exit node, and this is really an important phrase, compromised exit node that could sniff, log, or otherwise misappropriate my credentials. Steve, I'd love it if you would run a Tor server. I feel after years of listening now that your node would be trustworthy. I think we know that. Uh, I'd be sure to make your server the exit node of choice in my Tor.rc file. What do you think? Would you consider adding a server to the Tor network?
1: No. Yeah, I wouldn't either. Well, and here's the pro- here's why, and here's the problem, is that I care passionately about, you know, Michael's characterization of me being trustworthy. Yes. I mean... I would absolutely, myself, never in a gazillion years consider taking advantage of that trust. But I don't have control of the traffic once it leaves the wire in my rack at level three. And that's why I thought this was an interesting question and one that we needed to discuss is that it's certainly the case that that you might have untrustworthy Tor exit points meaning that that there's i mean the inherent in the Tor network is this notion of aggregation of traffic there are only so many Tor exit points and everyone using the Tor network has all of their traffic jumping from one server to the next and if if our listeners if we have any listeners who don't remember about Tor or don't know what this is we did a beautiful podcast on it how we explain why it's called the onion router and how how each node only knows enough to take one layer of encryption off of the the data and then forwards it on to the next. So that it it really creates a very strongly encrypted anonymous system and and even when it comes to like routing the data between Tor servers. Ultimately though, you have to leave the network at a so called exit node. At that point, the last the, the the innermost wrapper of encryption is removed by the exit node Tor server and your traffic goes onto the internet without any encryption encapsulation. So you can imagine that anybody, any entity, whether it's governments or m- malicious people—not to say malicious governments—but you know anybody who's interested in the kind of traffic that people might want to anonymize. You might you might imagine that the traffic entering and exiting Tor nodes is is more interesting than than just the random sea of traffic on the internet because there's a presumption that there's something, there's some reason that people want to to have anonymity and the privacy that Tor potentially uh, creates. The point is that anyone operating such a node, like myself, can can control their own node. That is, can say, okay, um, you know, I know that I've like I, I made it secure, it's got its own firewall protecting it. Um, I don't care what data comes in or out. I mean, you know, I've got 20-plus years of history of dealing with hard drive data, and every so often, more, more in the old days, people would send a drive that, you know, that, that, um, that they desperately needed repaired, and I'd sort of, you know, do it as a favor. Well, as a matter of honor, I never looked at anyone's data. I don't care about that. I just, I like the idea of being able to fix it and then able to send it back. So similarly, I don't care about what, what is you know going on if I were to run a Tor node, but the point is ultimately I'm connected to my provider by some wire, and it goes to a router somewhere, and off it goes. At that point, I've lost all control. If, if I had a Tor node and it was an exit point, then the, the, all the client traffic has been decrypted as it left, and if, for example, some government were to subpoena an eavesdropping operation on that wire, I would never know. So with the best of intentions, I would, you know, basically the trust that had been placed in me would, through no fault of my own, be subverted. So that's just not something I would want to do.
0: I'm going to also refer you to a blog post that I read recently from, uh, it's a dot com. His post is, Why you need balls of steel to operate a Tor exit node. Uh, inter- and he says, I totally believe in Tor, as we do. I think it's a magnificent force for the circumvention of internet censorship, but there's a problem. I was visited by police in November 2008 oh. because my IP address had turned up in the server logs of a site offering or perhaps trading in a child pornography. The date of the offense was one month after I started this, this, the server, so it looks like the site in a big question had been under surveillance for more than a year. It, uh, his, the police made what's known as a dawn raid. They threatened to burst down the door. They had never heard of Tor. They had no idea what he was up to. But just the fact that somebody had used Tor to access that server, he was the exit node, so he was the node of record, uh, implicated him. They took his computer, uh, went through it forensically, uh, he was never charged, fortunately, but uh, that's the risk you run. You don't know what people are using it for.
1: Right. Well, and, you know, here's Michael, who's living in Southeast Asia. He'd, he'd like to have access to services that are only available to, to U.S. and European IP addresses. So it's one of the things that Tor does is allow you to an- anonymize yourself and Lock your your exit node to specific IPs, which is very convenient. Um, so it's it's a it's a tremendous server uh, or service. But as you say, Leo, it it comes with a with a great risk to those who are running those exit nodes. Yeah,
0: and we thank them for doing that. Yes, <laughs> we encourage you not to do anything illegal on those servers. Listener Fred says, "What's an HTTPS scanning server?" Steve, I especially enjoyed your series on HTTPS secure HTTP, but I have a question about something called an https scanning server. When I log onto my corporate domain every morning, I have to click through a pop-up window agreeing to be monitored. The text of the pop-up says, "Users are subject to monitoring at any time, including accessing https websites using iAccess. https scanning servers decrypt all https traffic." I'm curious about their claim to be able to decrypt https traffic. I don't object to this on my corporate domain. But it begs a question: Can it really be done? And what's to prevent any other server from doing it? We've talked a little bit about this in the past.
1: We have, and I, I don't want to, I don't want to belabor the point. But I, I wanted, first of all, Fred says that he does, doesn't object to this on his corporate domain. Doesn't I, matter. <laughs> I want to make sure that he understands this is not just accessing his corporate domain, but accessing anything outside his corporate domain right. that is being scanned. So. Well, the idea is that that uh, first of all I, I, I did like this question because it demonstrates a concrete instance of this happening you know we've talked about it I talked about having gone to RSA and talking to a company that is that is offering these services I want to make sure because I think it's important that our listeners really get it that HTtPS can be decrypted on the fly if your system has been configured in advance to allow that. So Fred's question says, "I don't object to this on my corporate domain, but what? A, but what's to prevent any other server from doing it?" Well, it's it's this it's the configuration, the use of this so-called I access approach, where where all of the clients in the corporation are accepting a certificate from the gateway, which allows. A secure essentially allows the gateway to 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 function as an impersonation of the remote server. There, uh, essentially, that you're, you're you're saying that your gateway is trusted, like a so-called certificate authority, and it's that like a root authority. So the gateway is able to essentially sign the certificates of um, of sites that that you think you're visiting. In fact, you're visiting the gateway. Your traffic is decrypted there, analyzed, and then re-encrypted for its transit across the internet. So I, I just wanted to... to I, I like this because it says, you know, this really does happen. Here's an example of it. I'm impressed that every time, every morning when he logs on, he's reminded... That's a
0: good thing because they don't have to do that.
1: No, they don't. And I, I did like that about it very much, that it's it's like, okay... We're going to, you know, you're going to say, yes, I agree every single morning at the start of the day. uh, And we're going to remind you that this is what's going on.
0: I always encourage, you know, first of all, employees have to remember they're using company equipment. And so the courts have consistently ruled that companies have the right to do any kind of monitoring they want. But I always encourage without notice, but I always encourage companies to make a written policy to post it and to tell employee regularly inform employees of what they're doing. That probably has a good kind of preventative effect, anyway.
1: Well, and I've I've re- recommended that it be put on a on a strip, like a piece sort of like a, <laughs> scotch, under a monitor, like yeah. like a Scotch, scotch tape across <laughs> yeah. the top of the monitor. Yeah, that's a good idea. So it's just in front of you all the time, because you know it's the the as you know it's it's been well established that companies have the right to do this. However, the psychological effect of learning about it when you didn't know. I mean, that's what causes people, you know, employees to, like, drive their cars through the, the, the front office of the company and, you know, really become outraged. I'm reminded of the original discovery of AdWare from that company AdAware, and it was, you know, that's when I coined the term spyware and wrote that first little anti-spyware gizmo opt-out back in the old days, and people were phenomenally upset I mean, even though the fine print they had agreed right. the, that they didn't really know this was going on really upset them. And so it, it's, you know, you don't want to surprise people this way. So I would just say it's so, it makes so much more sense to be up front.
0: I agree. Yeah. I agree. And it has, a, it has a good deterrent effect as well. Uh, Jack Jensen, Tampa, Florida, says, I have an unwanted, comp- unwanted company. He says, I'm trying to get help. I'm hearing the sounds of... Ma- this is the kind of question I get on the radio show, yeah. by the way, Steve, all the time. I'm hearing the sounds of mouse clicks and keyboard typing, not mine, coming from my speakers. Even with the browser closed, I tried SpyBot, Malibite, Super Anti-Spyware, CC Cleaner, running free of Komodo Firewall. I do have snapshots of denial of Firefox requests while I'm using it, and also my active connections, if that would help, and I could attach it. Thanks, and
1: help! Yeah. <laughs> We, uh, as what is said, it, what's going on? Because I'm I'm curious. Well, I, I don't know specifically, but you know if this is going on and like you know Firefox is trying to, to is denying things or or acting oddly, it really sounds like he's not in control of his own machine. He's hearing
0: it, typing and mouse clip clicking coming from his speakers.
1: Yeah, there, there's something that's bizarre, very wrong uh, in his system. Um, He's, he's obviously tried all kinds of anti-spyware stuff. The one thing that I would recommend is, is, is due to the nature of contemporary malware, we've got this problem that we've talked about often called rootkits. Once something gets into your computer, it can be extremely difficult to see it because, because you're using the operating system and trusting the operating system to do the seeing for you that is anything you run on your computer is a client of the operating system which uses the operating system services to i mean even doing a directory listing you ask the operating system for a list of the files on you know in in a directory well if the operating system itself is compromised that is something has crawled in underneath it then that's something can filter out the response. We we saw this famously with the Sony DRM. the Sony's digital rights management that installed a rootkit, which which hooked the response to directory listings and removed itself from those listings. So you you no matter how much you tried to look, you couldn't see what was really there. The only way to deal with this is to take the draw well there are many ways to deal with it. In my opinion, the most straightforward and in some ways easiest way is to take the drive out of the machine and make it a data drive of a of another machine and then scan that drive. You don't want to run anything on this data drive because you don't want anything to have a chance to get off of of this infected drive. But if you the, the problem is all of these scanners are scanning after the infection has taken hold, so they may not be able to see it. Um, I did this just a couple weeks ago with, with a friend's laptop that was infected and found everything on it by attaching it as, the, you know, a, as a data drive and running the scanner on a good machine against that data drive, and it was able to find it, and there was, there was no chance for the bad stuff to get in there and prevent it from being seen.
0: Yeah. I'm wondering, uh, you know, maybe could it be just kind of RF leaking into the... Uh
1: I was thinking the same thing. When yeah. he, but it sounds like it's autonomous, That it, like it's happening when, he, when it's not he who's clicking things. And he also says that Firefox is...
0: That's that's the thing that's worrisome. Yes. Those certificates or whatever.
1: Denials of... He says the denials of Firefox requests. So Firefox is trying to do something. Right. Um,
0: well, this was a symptom of Conficker. Uh, a very strong symptom of Conficker because one of the things I think all variants do is block you from going to antivirus
1: sites. Yes, I was just going to say, if you hadn't said it, that I forgot to mention when we were talking about Conficker, people have been wondering how to easily determine whether they've got it. Well, try, try to go to Microsoft.com, there you go. Sans, SANS.org, or Semantec.com because Conficker blocks at least those three and more. And your computer just will not go there. So if you find that your machine will not go to org, then game over.
0: It also won't allow you to do uh, Windows updates. Right. Yeah. Game over, man. <laughs> you know, I think uh, given that we know that there's, there, there, there's probably somewhere between 9 and 15 million computers that have Configure on them, uh, that it's a very good likelihood the people listening to this show don't have it. I think that's true. But yeah. that they know people who do. So it would be the the good thing to do, the good Samaritan thing to do, to, to talk to your less sophisticated computer friends about this and spread the word. Yeah. Paul Harding in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, wonders about external drive recovery. Well, you got the right guy. Steve, I have a question you might want to address for all Spinrite potential customers, although I personally don't own Spinrite yet. I've heard now hundreds of testimonies that praise the wonders of Spinrite. I have no doubt that Spinrite is a fantastic product. And my questions in regards to the usefulness of Spinrite on external USB, eSATA drives, and NAS drives. Currently on my computer, I have 5.6 terabytes of storage. You know, a few years ago, that would seem out of you know out of control. But oh, actually,
1: mainframes didn't have that yeah. much storage,
0: but now it's like, yeah, okay, couple drives, eh, eh, big deal. Yeah. <laughs> I got that in my bathroom. I just ordered 12 (laughs) gigabyte drives for our NASAs, to upgrade our NASAs. It was a a terabyte. I mean, 12 terabyte drives. It was a terabyte, 300, 250, so we're going to upgrade the NASAs. And a terabyte is kind of, it's $100. It's the default size now.
1: You know, um, I'll just interject here. Uh, I had Mark Thompson visiting twice over the last couple of weeks. He was driving through. He went up to the uh, the Game Developers Conference, the GDC, up in... Oh, I wish I'd known. I would have loved him to visit. Yeah, well, he was with a bunch of friends and back-to-back meetings. Oh, he's got okay. all kinds of things he was going busy. on. Yeah. So he was super busy. But um, he happened to mention that he's using Western Digital drives, And I remember the days when... Nothing could make me use a Western Digital drive. I know that's changed, though, hasn't and it? And that's my point. Yeah. I wanted to give them real props. Yeah. And and I know I I heard you speaking. Maybe it was to Andy about some like the one gig black, the black caviar, caviar black. Yeah, that yes. was to
0: uh, Brian Shroud. We were talking about that. Right.
1: So I just wanted to say that. I mean, I know that there are. That it, it is a moving target. And it's it's the case that a company that's, that, I mean, hard drive storage is on the edge. Yeah. It's always on the edge yeah. because if they could fit any more data in there, they would. And so they do, always to keep themselves on the edge, being as competitive as they can. But so as a consequence, it's sort of, you can go through a bad spot, a rough spot where your process just isn't nailing it down or that it's got problems after a few months. And after being burned by a succession of WD drives, I swore them off. But this was 15 years ago. On, on the other hand, those memories are slow to die. They are. I think it's clear that this memory should be dead and that I need to give Western Digital another look.
0: You know, um, the uh, Egghead had a deal of $119 for 1.5 terabyte Seagates. <sighs> Uh, but I was a little, this is oh, funny, Seagate. I was a little slow to buy the Seagates and I said, you know what, I'm going to buy the Western Digital Caviar Greens instead.
1: Yep, I think they're now, the, I think they're the sweet spot now.
0: Yep, yep. And the Greens are good because they, they run a little bit slower, uh, cooler, lower energy and perfect for a NAS. Yes. We're going to put four in Drobo's, uh, uh, four in a Drobo because we're going to give that away and we're going to put four in the NAS and we use the other four for uh, recording the shows. Uh, but I've been using Hitachi. I know you like the Hitachis. They I do bought, very much. They bought the DeskStar line.
1: Yes, from IBM. Yeah. Uh,
0: let's see. Moving along. Oh, we're continuing to answer a question. I forgot. We haven't even gotten to the question yet. Um, I know a little extreme for a home user, he says, about the 5.6 terabytes. However, I uh, edit video and regularly max out my storage space. 1.5 terabytes of this space is completely external drives, 1.5 in terabytes in a NAS. Can spin right maintenance be used effectively on the USB or the NAS? Thank you for your informative podcast. I've been a loyal listener since the beginning. And as an aside, I have a great story about how your podcast helped to catch a criminal. What? Mm. I'm waiting for the trial to begin. We'll send you the story once I'm not in a place uh, that could compromise the case. By the way, you should do an episode on computer forensics. I would love that if you did that, Steve.
1: Um, We'll do it. Yeah. Um, Relative to Spinrite and maybe other data recovery utilities, I really can't speak authoritatively about anything other than Spinrite, there really is a difference between external serial interface like traditional serial interface, like USB and FireWire um, or network and eSATA. Um, What I mean is that um, eSATA is essentially the same, you know, the, 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 the external SATA, serial ATA. That is just like the ATA interface, but it's been serialized. So there's the same total access to the hard drive's guts for eSATA, uh, SATA, and PATA, par- the parallel ATA. Those, those are the best way of letting Spinrite have access to the drive is anything that's ATA because there's a whole vocabulary of commands which are not about transferring data in and out, but are about the inner workings of the drive, which gives Spinrite far more intimate connection to the drive. It's able to, to do things that it cannot do if you are over a network where basically your API, so to speak, your 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 interface is read this block of sectors and write that block of sectors. That's pretty much all those in, these the 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 remote coupled um, or the the USB and the FireWire uh, interfaces allow is read and write data. They do not allow nearly the same level of of recovery and intimacy. So we recommend. To uh, anyone who's who really wants to maintain their drives, or especially data recovery, it is worth taking the drive out of that configuration, sticking it onto a motherboard, and running Spinrite against it. There, uh, the results. I mean, we, we hear also people doing data recovery remotely through USB and FireWire. It can work, but I you know, if it were me, I would always go to the trouble. If this was important data. To, to give Spinrite the best connection it can have to the drive yeah
0: i think i told somebody that on the radio show this weekend that yeah you want an internal drive it's the
1: best my neighbor said uh she was out watering the lawn yesterday she said hey i hear you have six six uh <laughs> palm trios <for> palm pilots.
0: <laughs> not the pilots i think i said the t what was it the uh, it was tx's right the, yeah yeah i yeah. think i said the tx's and i said what <laughs> How could you possibly know what my
1: Palm Pilot count is? Yeah.
0: Here's what happened: a guy called up was furious. He had a Palm Pilot, and basically, you know, poM its over for Palm. That Palm OS. I mean, they're yep. going to go to their Web OS. And yep. in fact, the jury's still out whether that'll be enough to keep them alive. Uh, and uh, he said, but what about us? I love my pilot. I said, well, I have a friend, Steve Gibson, <laughs> who felt the same way, loved the TX so much he bought a half dozen of them and put them put them in the freezer.
1: Yep, they're still there. They're, they're, they're in the refrigerator just waiting in case I ever need them.
0: <laughs> now you're looking pretty smart,
1: Mr. Gibson.
0: <laughs> I love that. Uh, you're, I use you as an example fairly frequently on the radio show.
1: Of over-the-top extremism.
0: Yeah, the geek, the real, yeah. the true, what a true geek is all yeah. about. Mike Nicklin in Eureka, California, writes, he's got three questions. One, do you accept cookies? Two, this is like a congressional hearing. Do you worry about them? Three, should cookies be accepted just to keep the hassle down? Three questions, three quick answers. So let me give you number one. Do you accept cookies? Steve Gibson, the world wants to know.
1: I accept only first-party cookies, never third-party cookies.
0: Number two. We'll, well, we'll let you explain further in a minute. Number two, do you worry about cookies? No. Number three, <laughs> number three, should cookies be accepted just to keep the hassle down?
1: That's not necessary, Senator. Thank you. Speak into the microphone, son, and tell us your position on cookies. Um, I've been exposed to extre- all the extremes of of. Cookie handling. There are a lot of people who just don't worry about it, don't care. They just say, "Well, I have no control over what happens on the internet. All of my privacy and my rights are gone anyway, so I'm not worrying about it. I, I, I've got better things to do than worry about it." There are uh, the, uh, one extreme. The other extreme is people who have, I mean, really focus on cookie management. And, you know, go through their cookie list and think, where did this come from? And they delete it. Um, Or they, like, set their cookie files to read-only. So their browsers, you know, bang on the door, unable to store a a, a cookie there. And then they selectively, you know, let them in. I mean, there's all kinds of policies. I'm much more of a middle-of-the-road cookie person, which is why I don't worry overly. But I take a simple countermeasure which is just say no to third-party cookies. All browsers allow you to turn them off. Sadly, not all browsers even do that correctly, but that'll be a topic for a future show. Since I've got, that, I have got a, a cookie forensics technology now working on a site for some time, which does a good job of, of allowing people to see exactly what their browser is doing. But for most people, for Mike, I would just say go find the setting, to disable third-party cookies. It's in IE, it's in Firefox, it's in Safari, everybody's got it. And just turn that off. Um, you may want to flush your cookies after you turn it off and restart your browser, because that way you've gotten rid of the debris that you've accumulated, um, and then don't worry about it, because you, you've, you've really dealt with the major source of tracking. Now, flash cookies are a different matter, and they're becoming a little more pernicious over time, and we'll be dealing with that too. But just say no to third-party cookies, and you've, you've really done 99% of, of the work for 1% of, uh, you've, you've solved 99% of the problem for 1% of the work.
0: And I have one more question to you. <laughs> Did you ride here in a private jet? <laughs> All right, moving on. Lee, Lee W. in West Milford, New Jersey, refuses to elevate his rights. Steve, I'm a faithful listener of security now since episode one and Leo's other Twitch shows. It has replaced my radio for my two-hour daily commute to work. I have learned a tremendous amount from your shows. I'm also a proud owner of Spinrite. I tell everybody about it. It saved me and my family members several times. I've been following your discussion about the Microsoft Malicious Software Removal Tool and decided to download this month's release, KB890830. I launched the tool as described by the Microsoft site and then was surprised by the prompt, you must be logged on as a member of the administrators group to run the tool. Sure enough, it does say that on the download page. You and Leo have me trained well for security and I simply won't use my PC as admin, period. I use a limited user account unless I need to install applications or other items. It just strikes me as funny that Microsoft didn't design a tool to run for limited accounts, where all software should be designed to run for security purposes. Most average users should use a limited account to protect themselves. I did not try it with the automatic updates in the limited account. I just thought I'd share this with you. This is actually a really good point. I love the show and want to thank you for your hard work and dedication you give to the world by trying to make it a safe and secure Internet. I love your precision. Yes, I agree. And great care you have for getting things right. Keep up the great work. P.S. I too use Firefox, no script plugin, and block all and run only the main sites as temporary allow. I sometimes enjoy figuring out which scripts allow a page to work. So uh, I've modified my recommendation, by the way, to run as a limited user because of user access control and the way Microsoft works. But let's talk about rights elevation.
1: Well, I would say to Lee that I'm really happy he's, he's taken the he's philosophy listening. and the position yes, he has. Yes, yes. But there are some times when running as an, ad, as an administrator does make sense. It's, it's what you have to do. And he cites when he, when he needs to install software. He, he needs to run as an administrator. Well... The fact that MSRT will not run as a limited user is is really demonstration of the beneficial limitation normally of being a limited user. I mean, you would want it not to be able to run because the whole point of being a limited user is that what you're able to do is limited. <laughs> Unfortunately, this is a trusted, authentic from Microsoft tool that needs to get to the deepest roots of the operating system in order to do its job. It, by definition, it cannot do that from a limited user account, and you don't want it to be able to do that. But, but, I, so, but philosophically, I, just, I wanted to, to suggest that Lee back off a little bit and to recognize that it's not the case that there is no role for administration other than just installing software. There are things, and MSRT is a perfect example, where the nature of it is that its operation requires full access to the system. You don't want your typical user to have that most of the time, but you do want the administrator, the trusted administrator of the system, when running trusted software, then it absolutely makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And you know you
0: can right-click on any application and run it as administrator.
1: Yes, you need to provide those credentials, right? And, and then, so it's very easy to do. You don't have to go through log-off, log-on process.
0: And that would be the preferred way to do it because then you you don't forget to log right. out and, and right. so forth. So, uh, but I still run as limited user, even though nowadays uh, running as because of user access control, even now nowadays you don't really run as administrator, even when you're running as administrator, right? Well-
1: Yes, and you know this is a, another perfect example of, of of the evolution of security. Right. It is you know today it is much more practical to run with in a non administrative context than it was when we first started recommending it. I mean you know Unix has always been this way. Windows was never this way. Right. Windows didn't have this notion. So what happened was that people who tried to to, to Use good security practice and be a limited user. They kept running into their software that re- that wouldn't work right that way. It took a while for the software to catch up, for, because and it took pressure from the users. Users saying, "Gosh, you know, I need my email client to run as, in in a limited context," and and it was just sort of because that wasn't being done often originally that. That, that programs that did not need administrative rights assumed them, and then they, w- they would break when you ran them in a non-administrative context. Well, we've had years of that now, and software has caught up. So, so that original barrier to, to running as a limited user is pretty much gone now, and that's a really good thing, but it, it's, another, it's an example of this just taking time. You know, unfortunately, this is all evolution.
0: Welcome to the wacky world of security.
1: Welcome to reality. Yeah, yeah.
0: Ben Founts at Virginia Tech. What a great school! Uh, needs to reach out and touch clients. He says, "Hi, Steve, longtime listener here. Keep up the great work." Uh, I've always wondered if there is a client server type of application for administrators that works similarly to what gets installed in a zombie machine. <laughs> I'm thinking I'd set up a nice dedicated server somewhere, install a lightweight presence and remote control service daemon on each client machine. The service or daemon would maintain a TCP connection back to the server, just like a a zombie would, updating statistics and allowing me to remote control the machine. This would be beneficial to me because I'm finding myself supporting machines in more and more locations. It's often difficult or impossible to connect to the client machines when necessary because of NATs or firewalls or blocked ports, that kind of thing. Having the client machines maintain a TCP connection to one of my servers would be very nice because it would bypass most of the network issues I've been having. In other words, it establishes an outbound connection and keeps it open. I was thinking about how this kind of app could be created, then I remembered you discussing your new VPN application. I know you're currently in the design stage, so I thought, let me throw this idea your way to make sure you uh, put it in. I am the only IT administrator for our department, so this kind of functionality would be great for me, thanks. That's a really interesting idea. What do you think?
1: It's in there. It is. Yep, it's uh it I there are CryptoLink is the forthcoming VPN that he's talking about um from from GRC. And I was I was very enamored of the ease of setup that Hamachi offered. Right. Yet I also heard many people complaining that when Hamachi servers went down, the whole Hamachi network went down. Yeah. So it's nice to have it when it's there. It's it's a problem to depend upon it if it happens not to be there.
0: Well, they were doing kind of a, a triangle, right? So you would contact the server, and uh, that's kind of what I know. Go to my PC does
1: right, um, and so so CryptoLink will have a number of different ways to operate because the because if you want the super simple drop in operation where nothing needs to be configured, I mean, nothing, and where both endpoints are behind NAT, then because both are behind NAT routers, it's not possible for either endpoint to connect to the other because they can, all, they can both get out of their own NAT, but they can't get into the other NAT. It'll get blocked. So what's necessary is that for a third-party, a so-called rendezvous server... They connect to this rendezvous server. The rendezvous rendezvous server is able to look at the nature of the packets coming to it and then inform inform the other side about how they should try connecting in. And so you're able to often to knit a cross-dual-nat connection, but you absolutely need that external third party. So the beauty of that is it just works. No router configuration. It just works. So I absolutely want my system to have all the features that Hamachi did from that standpoint, but I also want it not to depend upon that because trustworthy as I always intend to be and and, and will be to the degree it's in my it's in my control, um, I I don't want to force anyone to trust me, beyond trusting that I wrote the code correctly. So so another way for CryptoLink to work will be in a so-called TNO, trust no one mode, where if, if for example, someone like Ben knew he wanted inbound connections, he could, he could configure his router at his end with an, to allow incoming connections. Then anybody anywhere, even behind NAT, and independent of firewalls and ISP port blockings and everything. I mean, I'm designing this so that it will always get through. They would then be able to make incoming connections um, into his network. So it'll definitely, you'll get the, the, essentially the best thing that all these approaches have to offer.
0: I can't wait.
1: I can't either. As soon as I get this other backlog of stuff done, I'm on to it.
0: Pujan Wa in uh, Chicago, Illinois, our question number eight, wonders about password strength meters. I'm wondering how the password strength meters, those bars, you know, that go from red to green, (laughs) some sites have them depending on the length of your password work. I've noticed that Google, when signing up for an account, or Yahoo, or Microsoft, or anything that has an indicator of how good a password uh, is, uh, I'm wondering, is, is there some mathematical formula? If so, what is it? If I type in 7EDHHR7J, Google says it's strong. However, if I type in 01234567, Google says it's fair. Clearly, there's more than just length involved. P.S. I used SpinRight last week. It was especially timely since all our music and videos were on the computer, and I had just bought my wife a new iPod so she could entertain the kids on a spring break trip. <gasps> Luckily, SpinRight came to the rescue just in time, so she has a bunch of music and kids' shows on her iPod for the flight. So what's the story on password strength?
1: Well, okay. I they're, think they're making it up. It's, they are. Um, <laughs> which is not to say that that's bad. What I like about these meters is that it's, it's a nice means of educating the typical user. Right. Lord knows our listeners, I mean, we've, I've spent, we've spent the first three months of this podcast, uh, you know, episodes one through 12, talking about passwords, I think. Um, so there's nothing that our users, are that, are that our listeners don't know about password strength. But we're, you know, many of us, though there are, we're certainly the minority. And the idea of rating a password as you type it in, of course, that requires some dro- JavaScript to be watching while you're typing. So the JavaScript is running an algorithm to perform a so-called heuristic, a, a heuristic is sort of the fancy term for a rule of thumb. And so there is no standard for what makes a good password, for when this goes from red to green. Um, it's, it's encouraging, for example, that Google was smart enough to know that zero one two three four five six seven had some problems. Um, you don't know what the algorithm was that had it decide that. It might it might be special casing looking for sequential number stream. Um, it might be like looking for a sequential difference between them. you know the, the idea is it's sort of anything that the programmers came up with that are sort of guidelines for the obviousness and the guessability of the password could go into this meter and and inform the meter how good it should think. What's been entered so far looks. You know, you'd like to see upper and lower case. You'd like to see mixed numbers and letters. Um, and you'd like, you'd like to see length. So my guess is if you, if you see mixed case, mixed numbers and letters, and sufficient length, then that's a pretty good password. You can write a little bit of JavaScript that will, that will look at those things and, you know, rank the password accordingly. And I just think it's good. I think, yeah. you know, if, if someone puts in, you know, their name or their... Sexy. But yeah, yeah. It, exactly. It's going to say, ah, try again. Ah. Yeah. But and there's so it's no, just sort no... of nice little closed-loop feedback that there's... I think, you know, this is, again, this is the way we move slowly forward.
0: Basically, there's no standard algorithm for determining nope. but, but But as you say, the most important thing is random. Random is good.
1: Oh, random is the best.
0: The more random, the longer, the better.
1: Entropy. We like entropy Entropy. in our passwords.
0: Of course, it's also harder to remember. Yeah. Uh, Dane Nilsson, a Yubiking winner. Yay. Congratulations, Dane. Asks about uh, using hash functions as ciphers. Hi, Steve. First, I want to thank you for the kind words you said about Key Genius and for explaining it so well to your audience I have one grievance with you though, when announcing the winners of the Yubiking competition, you stated that I was some guy in Switzerland. <laughs> I'm Swedish not Swiss. No hard feelings though. After all, you liked my entry, and if it weren't for you, I would never would have heard about the competition in the first place. We have a lot of Swedish listeners. Despite my bad Swedish chef voice. They put up with that. Anyway, on to my question. On the HMAC episode, you mentioned that Hash functions are freely available, are not encumbered by intellectual property, and haven't had the export restrictions that ciphers have had. Now, this got me thinking. Couldn't you take a hash function and modify it slightly to use it to encrypt and decrypt data? I mean, I came up with a scheme. But I'm curious to see if you think it would work or rather if there are any security vulnerabilities with it. So here's what I came up with. Oh, boy. Huh. We know that if we have a pseudo random stream of data, this data can be XORed with the plain text to produce ciphertext. Yep. A hash function will always generate the same output for a given input. Yep. So to encrypt data using a hash function, we could do the following generate a random IV. That's
1: the initialization vector.
0: Initialization vector, okay. Supply a passphrase to be used as the encryption decryption key. Append the passphrase to the initialization vector and generate a stream of data that is at least the length of the plain text according to this function. F IV plus pass equals hash IV plus pass plus hash plus, plus In other words, keep hashing it till you have enough. Now, each time you produce that hash, you're going to hash the hash, so you get a different result each time.
1: And it'll be longer. Yes. Because, because when you add the hash to the end, and then it's so that's longer by the hash's result length than what you had before. So
0: you hash the IV plus pass, then you hash the hash of the IV plus pass plus then you hash the hash the hash of and on and on and on, right. on until you get the enough enough ciphertext. Then you XOR the plain text with this data stream to get the ciphertext. So now he's going to say again what I just said, which is start by <laughs> generating a hash of the passphrase and IV together, then to make the produced hash long enough. Keep hashing it again and again each time, appending the result to the stream. Now the thing is, this is reversible, right? Because to decrypt, you just do the same thing, the same IV and passphrase used during the encryption. So the IV would have to be supplied together with the ciphertext. We'd have to say, here is the ciphertext, and you need this, the initialization vector. Have at it. Right. And of course, the passphrase you'd you're, you'd have to provide. It seems to me that this should work pretty well. Have I missed something vital? I haven't thought of a use for this since standard encryption is pretty ready, readily available nowadays. I guess he's thinking this would avoid uh, you know, intellectual property, export restrictions, the kinds of things that current ciphers have.
1: Right. Um, I thought this was clever, but I wanted to, to share this with our listeners because it demonstrates one of the perennial gotchas in cryptography which is this stuff is really hard. <laughs> you can think you got a good one. Yes. Um, the you know, my golden rule is keep it as simple as possible, as simple as you can, but no simpler. Yeah. And it, I mean, this hashing of the hash of the hash of the hash of the hash will definitely generate something. But, you know, he says, are there any secure, security vulnerabilities with it? I have no idea. I mean, and and a cryptographer might instantly go, oh, blah, 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 blah. You know, you know, yes, that's not, it, no, it, it doesn't work because when you iteratively hash a hash, the following thing happens. You know, all the bits in the middle go to zero, you know, on odd Tuesdays or something. I mean, it's, it's truly the case that this stuff is complicated. And it's often discovered that when you, when you repurpose something that was designed in one specific way for one specific purpose. When you repurpose it to something else, it just has horrible problems. And it looks great until the geniuses, you know, the crypto geniuses sit down who really understand this stuff, and it turns out that, like, all the middle parts might cancel each other out. I mean, I'm just making this up. I have no idea. But I would never do it, not without... You know, a crypto genius right. showing why this is a really good idea. Right. So, so you never want to just sort of come up with something um, because Lord knows what you end up with. The,
0: in, object, in the lesson, object lesson in this is web encryption, where perfectly intelligent engineers yes. created what they thought was a sound system. But any crypto expert could have looked at it and said, ah, here's the flaw.
1: Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great case in point.
0: Yeah, there's, those are smart people. I mean, it's not like these are we were saying they were bad and dumb, but they just weren't crypto experts.
1: Right. And And in fact, you know, Dane's observation was that, hey, since hashes have always been free of intellectual property claims and patent restrictions, why not do a crypto, a hash-based crypto? I think there have been some hash-based cryptos. I'm sure I've run across them. But- at the same time, we now have AES, so that problem is solved. We, I mean, we have an absolutely bulletproof, super strong solution, free of all that. Oh, and the other problem: hashing the hash iteratively would be very slow. It, it ends up, you know, being an expensive way to generate pseudo-random data, given that it really was high-quality pseudo-random data. You know, there are certainly Easier ways to do that
0: right, moving on to question uh, nine. Richard Frisch in Weston, Connecticut, wonders about password overload. Steve, you've often talked about passwords, but I have a situation uh that is significantly worse than most, and I wonder if you know of a solution to password overload. I have a client who does accounting, bookkeeping, and other functions for over sixty different clients. Ironically, one of them is Rube Goldberg LLC. <laughs> she has more online accounts and passwords than I could shake a stick at. As by the way, does our account- a bookkeeper? These these bookkeepers go from client to client. Each one has their own set of passwords. I believe she has more than two hundred account names and passwords. She needs to know some of the passwords are static. Some must be changed periodically. Sometimes she works from her office computer. Sometimes she's at the clients. You know what? Now I'm thinking I should probably ask her how she does this because. I want to make sure she's doing it securely, right?
1: Yeah. For, for, for your
0: for, for us. Yeah. Because she has all our account passwords. Almost all of the work is on PCs, but a few clients have Macs. Right now, she records all this information in a handwritten journal. She keeps unsecured at her desk. This is not good security. And it's a real pain for her to boot. Do you have suggestions for a better, easy way to handle this? Love Spinwright and the Security Now Show. Hello to Leo. Boy, now I have to I have to ask Lisa how she's doing it.
1: Yeah, and I don't have a specific solution. I mean, we know that the industry is full of all kinds of solutions, but I just want to sort of want to step back. I like this as a case study, and and obviously you can relate to it because you've yeah. got an accountant in a similar situation. Look at all of this nightmare for the single need, the single purpose. Of authentication, yeah. That's what that this, this all is. Am I me? And again, I, you know, here we are in 2009, recording this on April Fool's Day. Um, I'll just bet you. I mean, I don't know when, but a decade from now, if someone's listening to this, they're going to be going passwords. What? Two hundred passwords written down in a you know on paper? You got to be kidding me. I mean, I don't know whether it'll be that there you just have your wrist scanned or your retina flashed, or, or, you know, or everybody's Yubi got key. YubiKey's built into them somehow. I mean, this problem, we're going to solve this problem today, we haven't. Yeah. And it's escalating. I mean, the need, the pressure to solve it, as, as demonstrated by this question, is, is becoming overwhelming.
0: You know, I mean, just from a purely pragmatic point of view, I probably, I think a uh, password manager would be the right way to go. Um, there is, I recommended RoboForm on Windows and 1Password uh, 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 on the Mac, but there is an open source one called Keepass. K-E-E-P-A-S-S. Yes. It's cross-platform. Um, it's open source. It uses AES and 2Fish, so it's very secure. So what you do is you basically, you've got a database of all these passwords that is secured itself. And then you could put that on a USB key. You could have multiple copies. There's no reason not to. Uh, because it's the 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 the, the database is itself secured. I should probably help our bookkeeper with something. Yeah,
1: that. one. I mean, one question or issue, I guess, is whether you you carry the database with you or you you place it in the cloud. Right. And of course, that's that's a choice that's up to the user. It's certainly the case that okay, the the problem with the cloud, by just putting it out on the internet somewhere, is. That it's no longer necessary to trust that entity. That is, we can pre-encrypt the data before it goes there. You know, I do that with Jungle Disk. I have it in, in, um, an Amazon account, um, web, their 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 uh, you know S3 service, their their storage service, and Jungle Disk uses a key that Amazon never sees. So everything there is pre-encrypted. So it's no longer to trust them, except. You need to trust their availability. You need to know that when you're going to log on, that they're going to be there to provide your your um, your, your vault. Um, and you also you need to be in a in a situation where you have access to the cloud. You know, if you're logging on, for example, to TrueCrypt um, in a in a in a full drive encryption mode, then you you're not on the net at that point. So. You need a, you, you, in that case, you need a solution that can be sort of an offline authentication solution. So, you know, I think it's one of the problems is there isn't a single easy answer that solves every problem. But, boy, do we need one. I mean, we yeah. just need to solve this authentication yeah. problem.
0: Yeah. I mean, I like, it how, I like how you took it to the, the higher level issue, which has to, be, has to be resolved at some point. John Paquette in Framingham, Mass., wonders about granola dear steve i often hear you using the word granularity as a synonym for resolution as in uh, oh they've really bumped up the granularity of this so that users will be able to automatically disable auto run on drives of unknown types on removable drives on network drives cd roms that was from last episode doesn't granular like grainy mean the opposite of resolute precise or articulate oh love the show heard them all own spin right well granular is a is a geek term i think
1: I guess, and I think he raises a good point. Because, okay, I'll say something is more granular. Now, what I mean is more finely grained. not more grainy. Right. Well, no, more. Well, okay. <laughs> Do I mean <laughs> I fewer big gr- fi- fewer big granules? Is that more granular, or is it more granular if you have many smaller granules? And I decided it has no meaning. It, more granular. That that's. That, uh, that's a non-sequitur. I, it's, I think, it's
0: only in conjunction with the idea of globular.
1: <laughs> so granular and globular are, are antonyms? Yeah, well, yeah. Or, yeah no, I, mean, I don't think. I don't think you can have more or less <laughs> no, right. glo- Granularity.
0: Granular, you know, you're right. Uh, yeah. You know,
1: I think... It's it, a colloquialism. It is not a, uh, it's not a precise, precise term. term. Yeah, right. yeah, granular just means able to be broken up. But I don't think even being more granular, does that mean that gr- the grams, the grams are bigger or are they smaller?
0: Well, for the first time, because usually you don't pan back so far. But I'm watching on the video. I see the Oxford English Dictionary behind <laughs> you. So I think, and I have a copy here too. I think we should look this up. I actually did. Oh, you you rock!
1: And a- and I'm using it wrong.
0: You, well, but you but it's colloquially used. You're using it properly in 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 the computer science context
1: uh, but what does more granular? Uh, i agree
0: it's it's a meaningless term yes exactly but, but as with all language it's it's understood uh what you mean yeah well john didn't think so and, and I, <laughs> okay I think we won't I'm, use it anymore well, i'm agreeing with him <laughs> that's good no you're absolutely right what does it mean it's meaningless yeah wow john you've made a significant change good job i love the oed you have the the full set
1: there. It looks I like. do. It's just... Oh, my God. They weigh about 15 pounds each. And it's because little tiny, thin paper. And, oh, if you ever wanted, it... I mean, you can trace back the history of the words into, you know, how, they've, how it's, the usage has evolved over time. Well,
0: that's what made me think of it, is what we need is a geek OED that we could trace back to the first geek usage of granular mm. so we can understand what the context was and why. Yeah, the OED, uh, you know, the only... The only only time I really got mad at my wife, I bought the OED and I loved it. I thought the kids would use it. They never do. I kept going, oh, let's look it up in the OED. But I always wanted it for myself. Always wanted it. So I I finally bought it. It's fairly expensive to buy all whatever is 20 volumes or 30 volumes. Um, I bought it after reading The Madman and the Professor, Simon Winchester's book about the OED. That'd be a great audible recommendation. It's really fascinating.
1: I've, I've come so close to getting it on disc a couple times. If you look around, though, it's it's all apparently the access software is really bad. Yeah,
0: you know it's going to be.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: It's fine to have a book. Yeah. It's a beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. Um, where was I going with? And this? you don't have
1: to worry about booting them up either.
0: Oh, the one time I really got mad at Jennifer after buying the OED, I found it in the garage on the floor. Ooh. <laughs> So what she said it was taking up a lot of space. I said, what, what? what? <laughs> so now it's here in my office with another another set of volumes that was taking up space equally unused. The World Book Encyclopedia. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. We're old analog guys, despite our digital heritage. Let's uh, let's pause for a moment since I did not use the a word and mention Audible dot com. A great time to uh, and then we'll come back and we'll get the uh, the last question of the day, which is actually uh, a tip of the day. Yeah. From uh, Rick Hughes in, in Maryland. Uh, Audible.com slash security now. That's the place to go to get your free Audible account. Well, it's free for the first month. You get a uh, one credit free. Uh, I think you're going to love Audible. And you know, now, as long as I'm making a recommendation, since we've mentioned the OED, this is actually pretty serendipitous. Simon Winchester has written a number of wonderful books. You would love his books, Steve, he wrote The Map That Changed the World about the Birth of Modern Geology. He wrote uh, Crack in the Edge of the World uh, about the Great California Earthquake of 1906. Um, uh, he, Simon Winchester was a geologist, but there, the, he wrote, he's written two books about the Oxford English Dictionary, and I've listened to both on audible.com. The one I would recommend is The Meaning of Everything, The Story Now, I'm trying to, is this the same thing as the madman and the professor? I've owned, I own, both. I don't have to listen. (laughs) Now I'm I'm curious. It's the amazing story of the Oxford English Dictionary, the, the book that took a century to write. And what an amazing story. How did they make this? The goal of the Oxford English Dictionary over 100 years ago was to have every word ever used in the English language in modern times. Unbelievable! I mean, that they would even attempt this. The madman—it turns out one of the uh, one of the most important contributors to the Oxford English Dictionary uh, was in an insane asylum. Uh, there, I mean, it's an amazing story and a wonderful audio book. Highly recommended. Simon Winchester himself narrates it. He does all his books, and uh, while I don't usually recommend that you get author narrated books, this is one exception. He is so good. Now, this is what an audio book can give you. You can, you, can, you can get immersed in another world. You can learn. And all this while you would normally be fuming in the car at the bad traffic or bored at the gym on the Stairmaster or the treadmill or working in the garden or doing oh, housework. Instead, you're transported to another world. Time goes by almost too fast. Audible.com slash security. Now, give it a try. I think you're going to like it. Your first credit is free. If you decide to stick around, the book is yours to keep. And we have many recommendations. There's a ton of them. If you go to willhallmusic.com, we recommend a book every show. Um, Hundreds of recommendations so far. 51,000 volumes. There's no limit on what you can listen to, but this would be a great one if you like words. The Meaning of Everything, The Story of the Oxford English Dictionary by Simon Winchester. Audible.com. Slash Security Now. We thank them so much for their support of the Security Now program. Are you ready, my friend, for the last question? Let's wrap this. Have you ever read up. that book, The Meaning of Everything? No. You have the OED. That's what bought, that was. What inspired me to buy the OED? I said I have to have this.
1: Well, I also love that whole concept of a bunch of guys sitting around deciding what words are new.
0: Well, the first thing they had to decide was. Where do we start? Where, did, where does English <laughs> begin? Yeah. And I think that they didn't want to go past uh, old English. So it's, um, I can't remember exactly where they started, but that's a thats a puzzle. And then every word, they had to go through almost all the canon, every written b- word in English, and they made out little slips of paper with the word, the first use, the date of the first use, an example sentence. Wow. And, I mean, it... it it's a mind-boggling wow. thing. So what you have there on your shelf, what I have on my shelf, it's over on his upper left uh, shoulder for those of, upper left corner for those of you who are watching uh, at home. Yeah, there it is. Is in many ways one of the most significant books ever written in the English language. It's just an amazing work. And this the, that book will really turn you on to uh, to it. It's incredible. I can't figure out if the if the professor and the madman is the same book or not. I own them both. I should really listen listen to them and figure it out. I think they might have retitled it. Anyway, last question. Rick Hughes in Skysville, Maryland, brings in his Q&A tip of the day, an easier way to use Drive Snapshot. Now, I got a very nice note, by the way. Did you get that note from the author of the, of the program that you recommend?
1: I did, and I'm puzzled about it because I was so sure... That I once spoke to someone named Paul Terrell, and I thought that that's what Terabyte, T-E-R-A, was from Terrell. Uh, I guess I'm wrong, because the the guy at Terabyte said... I wrote that. Who's that? I've never heard of him.
0: David F. uh, of Terabyte Unlimited said, Steve mentioned uh, on Listener Feedback 62 Paul Terrell rated a Terabyte. I have no clue who this (laughs) is. The president's name and primary developer is me. David Fleetchek.
1: Yeah, anyway, it's funny too because I meant to go do an email search because I have all my email from like forever and find out because it would have been an email dialogue about, I thought about...
0: uh, Well, you know what I suspect happened is he... Well, of course, he would know the guy's name. Yeah. Maybe he acquired it.
1: That's what I thought. I thought the same thing. I just, you know... Anyway, I'll solve the mystery.
0: I bought it immediately after you talked about it and I've used it now to image a few things. And the main reason I bought it is... Uh, because Drive Snapshot makes it hard to make a bootable uh, disk that you can then reinstall, and that's kind of the key with a, with a with an image. This is what we're talking about is image software that makes a ghost image of your hard drive. Right,
1: and and Drive Snapshot also runs on DOS, right? So it's only able to see what DOS is able to see. Whereas oh. Image for Windows, uh Terabyte Unlimited um, Im- Image for Windows, it brings along its own. 1394 FireWire and USB drivers. It's able to enumerate the bus, find the drives, and it's also both. It's OS agnostic. It runs on on FAT file systems and NTFS files.
0: Right. Yeah. No. I I've been very happy with it. Uh, but I also own Drive Snapshot. On uh, 188, yep. you and Leo were discussing the difficulty of restoring from an image backup using Drive Snapshots DOS based restore disk. Yeah, as we just said. Uh, An easier way is to use Drive Snapshot, or to use Drive Snapshot, is to make a BART PE disk, uh, which is at NU2.nu slash PE builder. This is a free bootable Windows XP CD that natively understands NTFS, USB drives, networks. If you copy your licensed Drive Snapshot.exe file to the BART PE disk, you can just boot up from the CD and use the normal Drive Snapshot GUI for backing up and restoring to any drive. This is really what I should have done. Without having to fool with the DOS drivers. I've been using Drive Snapshot this way for a couple of years with no problems. I know you've switched to terabytes image for Windows, but Leo and others who still use Drive Snapshot might be interested in this approach. Thanks for all the great security now. Netcast and GRC software. I've been using SpinRite since version two. What an excellent product.
1: You know, we've never talked about Bart PE. We and should. Yes, we should. I had, believe it or not, my first occasion ever to use it within the last week, um, I can't even remember now why, but I got it myself painted into a corner somehow. I mean, the, the, I'm old school, so I've got, you know, old DOS tools that normally still I've got, you know, uh, uh, partition magic and drive image, and I'm, I'm very comfortable with all of that. So I think that's kept me from having to, to mess with BART PE. But somewhere in the last week, I needed it for something I was doing, and I, and I thought, well, okay, I've, I've heard about it, and I mean, I knew all about what it was, I'd never done it myself. I, so I just wanted to bring it up and, and mention it to our listeners. I'm very impressed with, with what it does. The idea is that it needs access to your original Windows installation CD. So that's, it's from there that it gets the original Windows installation files not able to get them from your computer because you know, it doesn't know what, whether they're intact, what shape they're in, whether you can trust them. I mean, BART PE is often used, for example, as an, as an AV platform for running Windows-based antivirus. So you wouldn't want to start with an infected Windows boot. But what this is able to do is to, and what it does is it builds an, an ISO image of a bootable CD with files that it gets from a real Windows setup, you know, install CD, and it just works. It, 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 it's a script that pulls the files together. You're able to add your own, put your own stuff in a directory so that you can customize it that way, and you end up with this CD that boots and runs Windows from the CD, and then you can do other things that you want to with it, you know, as if you had a running Windows. And, if, if, you know, if Windows won't boot, it's often a way to, to have some tools that allow you to figure out what's going on.
0: I tell everybody to, uh, to make a boot CD for sure. This is a good one. There's an uh, emergency boot CD is another one. Uh, and just to be fair, Terabyte also offers a plug-in for BART PE. When you download ah. Terabyte, you can download the plug-in. makes it very easy to make it part of your BART PE build so uh, that in future, when you build future BART PE discs, it'll just automatically be included.
1: Cool. So I think I'll probably put it and drive. Do Snapchat. both. Yeah.
0: You know, you probably have images lying around from both programs. Oh so, yeah. Yeah. Well, Steve, we reached the end of twelve fine questions and true from our great listeners.
1: And so nice to have Ray, uh, <laughs> tele- telephone quality audio, Leo.
0: <laughs> People go in the chat room, going, "What's wrong with Steve?" Uh, we will uh, get back to Skype uh, next week, just we a little. Absolutely will Skype hap as happens frequently. Uh, but, uh, we, you know, Hey, I understood every word you said, so that's, that's yep. the most important thing. If you uh, want to get 16 kilobit versions in which Steve will sound even worse yeah, and transcriptions in which Steve will sound exactly the same, you can get all of those at grc.com. That's of course the home of, uh, Steve Gibson and the Gibson research corporation. There you'll find all his great free, uh, security software like shields up, shoot the messenger decombobulator, Wizmo. And the world's finest hard drive maintenance and recovery program—a must-have for everybody. Can you put that on a Bart PE disk? I bet you could.
1: Well, you wouldn't need to because it doesn't need to it run under itself. Windows. So, yeah,
0: I wish you would. Yeah, Spinrite. I'm it makes about.
1: its own bootable.
0: I wish he uh, Snapshot would do what you do with Spinrite, which is it makes its own bootable. Right. You can make a boot disk, but you have to. It's complicated. It nah, is. Nah, nah, nah. Spinrite is available at grc.com. Get yourself a copy. It's well worth it. And uh, we will convene again next week for more security information. In fact, next week we're going to talk a little bit more about... The
1: ghost net. The spy the uncovery, network. The discovery of this really, you know, multinational, 103 different countries uh, spy network, uh, which, incidentally, is able to turn on the camera and the microphone... That are built into various machines in order to see what's going on. Oh, boy. <laughs> we're, I mean, we're really talking spy technology. Yeah. yeah. All right, Steve, we'll see you then. Got you then, Leo.
0: Security now. Yeah.